Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Adapters. Welcome back to a very, very exciting episode. Joining me in this podcast is the next generation of adaptation professionals. During the National Adaptation Forum in Baltimore, I was able to meet and interview five early career adaptation professionals. Adaptation as a sector has not been around that long. Many of this space were doing other related disciplines, but very few of us old-timers have been doing this our entire careers. I started doing climate adaptation in 2003, which makes me downright ancient in the adaptation space. The guests on today's shows are just starting off in their adaptation careers. I had a set of similar questions for each of my guests because I wanted to hear how each would answer the same questions. As you'll discover, they all have very unique journeys and experiences in the adaptation space. We learned their educational background, what inspired them to get into adaptation, what climate impacts and geographic regions they are most interested in making a difference in. Do they think there are enough adaptation professional advancement opportunities out there? What adaptation work they want to be doing in 20 years? And what unique skills do they bring to the resilience space? Talking to early career adaptation professionals was invigorating. There's a certain fatalism in some circles of the climate movement, but you won't find any of that with these professionals. I'm very optimistic that this next generation of adapters will exceed what my generation has done. When you hear their stories, I think many of you will agree too. This episode is being generously sponsored by the Genesee Mountain Foundation. Thanks to support by sponsors like Genesee, I can share these amazing stories. So upcoming episodes, I had a fantastic conversation with Dr. Kelly Haride of Liberty Mutual Insurance about climate modeling and what it means for the insurance industry, especially relevant in light of recent hurricane impacts. Kelly had some amazing insight on how the insurance industry is responding to the climate crisis. And I'm working on an episode focusing on mangroves as a nature-based approach to coastal adaptation. I'm partnering with World Wildlife Fund on that one. Great stuff on the way. For those of you who are looking for another adaptation conference, I've got a sensational opportunity for you. Join me and my new partner, Patel, for the next annual Innovations in Climate Resilience Conference, or ICR23. The theme is Bold Leaps in Action. The conference will take place on March 28th to March 30th, 2023 in Columbus, Ohio. I've been promoting this partnership for several months now, and I'm hearing back from some of you that you're planning to go or just curious to learn more. People were very curious to learn about this conference at the National Adaptation form. Patel is taking a lead in the resilience space and they want you along for the ride. Climate adaptation is still an emerging field and we're still not seeing participation from all sectors at many of our meetings. This conference has a track record of bringing in government, nonprofit, academia, and the corporate sector. Very few conferences have had success bringing in the private sector, but this one does. Industry will play an increasingly important role in the years ahead with adaptation. Guys, this is a rare opportunity for all relevant players to come together to share expertise and create new partnerships. Call for Abstracts is still open. Here's your chance to share your important work at ICR23. Some of the themes include resilient built infrastructure, climate risk and national security, ecosystem restoration and sustainability, so nature-based approaches. So take a look at the conference website to learn more and join me at this conference where leaders and creators are sharing groundbreaking ideas in climate resilience. And even if presenting isn't in your plans, I encourage you to attend and connect with your peers. Think of all the partnerships and projects that are created during coffee and lunch breaks at these conferences. There's a huge demand for more of these adaptation themed conferences. So definitely check this one out. Don't forget, submit your abstract today. Visit patel.org forward slash adapt to learn more. That's patel.org forward slash adapt. Links are in my show notes. Okay, let's join some early career adaptation professionals or generation adapt as I like to call them. 
Hey, adapters, I'm with Dolly Nayimi. So, where do you work? I work with the South Central Climate Adaptation Science Center. Where are you from originally? I am from Ghana in West Africa. So, what's your educational background? I have a bachelor's of education in geography and economics. I have a master's in geoscience, and then a PhD in geography and environmental sustainability. Okay, so did that educational background serve you well for an adaptation-themed job? Yes, it did. And also, my background of growing up on the coast in Ghana, coming to high school in Kentucky, experiencing an ice storm. So I do have the educational and personal experience that served me well in this role. Okay, so what inspired you to get into the adaptation field? Like I said, my background growing up on the coast. So while I pursued my undergraduate degree in Ghana, I actually joined a team of researchers to go interview、um, farmers who lived on the coast, and they were concerned about how rising sea levels were affecting their livelihoods and also the retreat of the sea. So that I think it gave me this background to be interested in how are these local folks adapting and what can we learn from their knowledge, local knowledge. Okay, you might have just answered it, but what climate hazards or impacts are you most interested in working on in the future? Yes, because of my background, I am interested in coastal sea level rise, coastal retreat. Because I also live in Oklahoma now, I'm interested in how severe weather will change. You know, how is the changing climate going to affect things like tornadoes, hailstorms, ice storms, and of course droughts. I failed to mention in Ghana, in northern Ghana, we are concerned about droughts, and in places like Oklahoma as well, drought is an issue. So I'm interested in how all those are changing now and how they'll change in the future and affect the livelihoods of communities that depend strongly or highly on the land. Okay, you're working in a particular place now, but are you more interested in doing adaptation in the private or public sector? So,、uh, I haven't thought about this much. Where I work now actually gives me the ability to work with both private and public. And in my role as an adaptation specialist, I'm actually supposed to build these networks, work with. All kinds of stakeholders to bring them climate information and also take back their needs to my center. So in my current role, I'm actually doing both of these things, and I'll see how that will transition in future and who else you know I can work with to better serve the needs of the individuals I'm interested in. Okay, so you're working in a particular part of the country right now, but do you have sort of an ideal setting where you want to do your adaptation work, either in the United States or internationally? I love the idea of doing global research, and one of the reasons is, you know, I also have this degree in geography where we are taught to think holistically and in terms of systems. And so I like to not think in terms of the boundaries. Boundaries are important, but you know, we have storms that transcend boundaries and regions. And so I'm hoping that my research can be more globally. You know, droughts occur in Oklahoma; they are a little different from the ways droughts occur in West Africa, but they are still. Drought, nonetheless, and so I want to think about my work as a, you know, have a global lens to how I think about adaptation. Also, what do you think you need to learn that universities aren't yet providing for you? You think about your own educational background. What gaps, especially now that you've been doing some adaptation work? So, well, there's a lot of them, but I think one, I'll, you know, try to come up with a few. But one of them are how to actually make connections. 
building connections, building networks, how to secure funding to do these kinds of work. Also, you know, classes on personal development classes on how to facilitate workshops, how to do these workshops, how to evaluate our work. And so I think there's some lack with, I mean, my education with all these specific skills. So, you know, I'm having to learn how do I make friends? How do I build partnerships? How do these partnerships transcend or go beyond the lifespan of grants? You know, so if I have a two year grant, this relationship should be beyond the two year grant, but also way before the grants began, you know, so just thinking ahead to get to my end goal. How does your workplace support and facilitate learning about adaptation? So luckily at the South Central, which is where I work, I've actually come to realize that, you know, I started in June, there Um, Some undergrads that the undergrads who are not necessarily scientists or have a science background who get programming training, who learn about climate downscale, climate downscaling. We also have personal development training. And so at my workplace, you know, I am working with a group of scientists who have been doing this for a long time. So even bringing me, so I'm not presenting at the um, National Adaptation Forum, but I'm here to build network to meet, which I just met you at this forum. And so these are their little things like this that my center does to ensure that what, no matter what background you come in with, you have the basic tools to help you get out there to do the job. Who's been an adaptation role model for you and why? Renee McPherson, who is actually my boss, is a role model I look up to. And I think there's a lot of reasons, but one of it is I think she mentors a diverse group of students and she says this a lot, you know, she she doesn't look at, and I think it's intentional. She's intentional about making the people she work with diverse because she learns a lot from it. She has a math and physics and science background, but she's transitioning into this role where she works with tribes and stakeholders. And so it goes to show that we can all change our ways of thinking or our backgrounds to incorporate more people and to do a better job with um, serving the needs of others. Okay, that was a smart answer. (laughs) What would you like to be doing in 20 years? In 20 years, I hope to be in a similar role like this. But I've always been interested in teaching, in outreach, and in helping. And so if I can imagine a perfect job for myself, it will be a job where I'm doing outreach, going out to the communities to share the knowledge, the skills, the research and resources I have with the community and bringing back the needs and knowledge and skills of that community back to a center I work with and hopefully teaching a class with students where we go through these skills and knowledge and skills I've learned throughout the years and how they can do this work. And so it would be learning the skills, teaching others what I've learned, taking that work out there and coming back with that work so that we can close the whole loop of doing research, making sure it's actionable and changing the world. (laughs) Excellent. Another good answer. In the work that you're doing or work that you think you might be getting into, you think there are advancement opportunities in your career? Yes, I certainly think this because this is now a growing field. A lot of people know that it's important not just to have science out there. We need people to take that science 
to the people that need it the most. And so, I mean, I'm new in the field, but I can see that it's a growing field and it's great and there's opportunities for advancement. And I have met folks like the director at my center, Dr. Mike Langston, who has risen to the ranks to be a, a, you know, a deputy director. And so there's ways that I think my role, you know, I can advance in my career being in this position. What unique skills do you bring to the adaptation sector? I think I'm an optimistic person in a way that we are in this field that it's a lot of times it can be very gloomy to think about the future. And it's helpful to come with a spirit of we can adapt. We are humans. There's hope, you know, even way before technology, our forefathers and ancestors made it. And so I bring that unique skill set. I also love working with teams and learning from others. And this might also be from just my background of Growing up in Ghana, where there's always a sense of community. And so I never have that feeling of despair because I believe that if I don't know something, there's somebody else out there who does. And all I need to do is reach out, ask for help, connect with that person, and we can get it done. Okay, I don't need to ask you the next question. Are you hopeful about the future? Because you just answered (laughs) that. All right, final question for my listeners. What adaptation resource would you recommend? Just one. What's been really useful for you? Has been on a website, a particular group? What what would you recommend? So I recently became a member of ASAP, the American Society of Adaptation Professionals. Yes. And I think they are a great resource. So if I had to think of one resource for adaptation professionals, it will be that group. They have a good mentoring session. They have Lots of training opportunities. So that would be a great starting point for anyone who wanted to learn more about this. Thanks and good luck to you. Thank you. It was great talking to you and great to meet your listeners. Hey, Adapters, I'm with Brian Watts. Where do you work? The Pew Charitable Trust. And how long have you been working there? About two and a half years. Okay, we're talking with young adaptation professionals here. So tell me a bit about your educational background. Great question. I have had a background, let's say. Went to UGA to get a degree at the uh, Odom School of Ecology, and that was a great time. Love those guys. And then I went to Indiana University in Bloomington for two masters, one in public affairs and one in environmental science. Why did I know this? I got my master's at the Institute of Ecology before they changed it to the school. Who did you work with there? Well, I guess quite a few people. I was one of those folks who kind of floated around, kind of did everything that I could. I'm taking my listeners off uh, the theme here a little bit, but I I did not know this. So you think about your educational background. Do you feel it served you well to do adaptation work? Yes. My background is pretty much in data, and I love data. And luckily, that kind of translates regardless of where you're going to go. School of Ecology, of course, is going to be a lot of information, data, a lot of really trying to understand some. I think I worked on influenza for a little bit. So obviously, it's a little bit different than, you know, necessarily uh, climate adaptation when we think about it, but really understanding the breadth of uh, information out there and how to pull it together actually has been super beneficial coming into something new like this for me. Who or what inspired you to go into the adaptation field? I think my recent professor, Mark Lame, was probably the one who kind of got me thinking about adaptation a little bit more because at least the way I'm interacting with data a lot and the work that I do, adaptation really is also about people. And uh, working with Dr. Lame in grad school really kind of helped show me that management and really dealing with a lot of climate issues is dealing with people. I think that's kind of where it started. 
you're still relatively early career, but do you feel there are enough adaptation professional development opportunities for you? I think there are probably a lot more than I know of and probably a lot more than most of us know of, but I'm not sure they're all available, made available to everyone who might want to go to them, myself included. So I do think there's probably room for one growth of, of those opportunities, but really communicating what they are and, and honestly getting a lot more other folks to get to those opportunities. All right. So what climate hazards or impacts are you most interested in working on and why? I work on flooding right now. That's a pretty big one. And I do think writ large natural disasters are going to be sort of one of those interesting ones that pull you in, even if you didn't want them to, because they do happen to pretty much anyone and everyone. They're global. And I think it's somewhere that you see people on all sides of the aisle really kind of interacting. And you do see some room for uh, bipartisanship, which I know that's a buzzword for most people. But truly, you do see this is kind of where you have to make a decision. You kind of have to work together. So are you more interested in working in the private or public sector? Well, we're going to go public. I do prefer public sector just for personally, it just feels like the the mission there is really to help people and to, to do a good job and not necessarily get anything from it. But I did work in private sector for a bit, and I honestly could not speak more highly of it because there is a drive there. Um, yes, there might be an, a, a monetary incentive to some degree, but there's a lot of innovation. And I, I like public sector, but truly, I think we need both. And I can handle both. <laughs> All right. Independence, you have your current job, but is there an area, and this is aspirational, an area of the country or world that you'd like to focus on for your career? Well, America, because that's where I'm at, um, and that's probably where I'll be for a while. And of course, I, I, I'm a fan of D.C. Um, it's where my mom is from and my granddad lives, but I have a special place in my heart for Korea. I was there for a little bit, two years, and I'm seeing a growing interest in flooding uh, initiatives over there, a lot of things with natural disasters, but just in general, I think like the green, the GCCC, there's something major related to climate happening over there, but that's kind of a Awesome place for innovation. Sort of a new country in a way because they had um, the fairly recent war. Yeah, I would say South Korea. You like kimchi? I love kimchi. You you name it, I'll eat it. <laughs> pickle everything over there. <laughs> what do you think you need to learn that our universities aren't yet really providing if you're in the adaptation space? That's a tough question for me to answer since I did go to school for in sort of like the hard sciences, environmental science, and then public affairs and sort of had to put them together and then sort of find the way to adaptation. So from my experience, I think the answer for me would be just really to bring adaptation and resilience into the coursework. And maybe it's happened. It's been, you know, a couple of years since I graduated, Ooh, more than a couple at this point. I think it would probably just be bringing that to the forefront in some of that coursework and really making it prominent. Okay. So how does your workplace support and facilitate you learning more about adaptation? Well, for a Prime example, being at the National Adaptation Forum Conference, this is a great opportunity and the willingness and really want to get our team out here just to come to learn, to have a couple of different sessions. I think that's one, it's huge. It's probably the, the most impactful thing that you can do, but really just encouraging thought. I think that sounds very probably super basic and potentially naive, but I do think encouraging thought and having conversations at work, which we typically do all the time on on the record, off the record, informally, formally. I think that's sort of what our work can, has done, can do, and hopefully will continue doing to support. Okay, let's see if I can ask this the proper way. How do you feel it's different working in the adaptation resilience space regarding climate change than someone working in the carbon mitigation space? Hmm, well, good question. Not working in carbon mitigation space, I, it's hard to give an answer that might not be 
think there is probably a right and a wrong sometimes. I'd imagine that a, a big piece of it is we've always, we've typically focused, at least in this country, on greenhouse gas emissions, and it's always going to be energy related, which awesome. Energy is very important in understanding how to make our, our, our grids more resilient, how to get our energy, how to vary where we're getting our energy from and our different energy sources. Super important, but energy is not the only thing. And there are a lot of other ways to sort of get at resilience and get at, um, at adapting to climate change. So I think, and I could be wrong, but I, I think the, the biggest difference is probably just the historic focus on greenhouse gas emissions solely like and, and, and reducing those, which is huge. Yeah, we got to, but there's there's a lot of other things going on too. What would you like to learn more about in regarding adaptation? Well, as a data person, I like numbers. I like to see things. So I'm, I'm pretty confident that I will be able to find things and sort of explore on my own. And that's kind of exciting because there is a lot out there. I think what I want to learn more about from the adaptation community is really how are we working with underserved populations? Because we talk about it all the time and then we might see one or two representatives from those, from these communities, but not quite sure I, I have seen a lot. And Maybe it's out there. And this is part sort of to one of your earlier questions. Maybe those opportunities, maybe those experiences are happening and I'm just not aware. So if we had a better way of sort of communicating where, you know, we're, we're doing this great work for underserved populations, that would be great. Who has been an adaptation role model for you and why? I feel like I'm supposed to say a certain person, like, you know, the president. But truly, one of my newer colleagues for me, Christiana, uh, has been seeing her work. I'm like, oh, yes, she... She knows what she's doing. She's very passionate about it. And I think passion at work is it's influential and it, it really seeps into your everyday in a good way. So she might not know it, but she's been amazing. Could you give me the full name in her role? Oh, Christiana Huber. Um, yes, she is uh, also at the conference with us. Uh, she is a an officer at Pew, the Pew Charitable Trust on the Flood Prepare Communities team. And she is wonderful. What would you like to be doing in 20 years? I would say sitting on a beach, but they might not be here. <laughs> Kidding. I think in 20 years, I'd like to still be able to work on the ground, like do the data, do analyses, really understand how some connections can be made between X, Y, and Z, A, B, and C. But at the same time, really kind of doing that higher level, just talking with people, getting getting messages out there and getting people to understand why things are important. But hopefully in 20 years, it won't be as much of a job of convincing folks, but really just sort of continuing to push progress that hopefully we would have made in 20 years. Do you feel there are advancements, opportunities for you? Sure, I do. I think like many things, though, you have to find them. I think a lot of times people can help you along. Everyone helps people along the way, so it's not just you. But I do think you have to reach for them. You have to find them. But I will say, at least being among people at this conference, everyone's so friendly. Everyone's so nice. I, I do think the opportunities are, are there, but you do have to do a little bit of digging sometimes. Okay, what unique skills do you bring to the adaptation sector? I can speak Korean. Just kidding. I don't know if that really helps us here. <laughs> I would say it's my, my data background. I do think I went to school for like hard sciences, really you know, coding, doing a lot of data analytics. And I kind of got out of that because I realized, well, I don't really just want to do some research just to have it sit on a shelf. Personally, I, I really just want to kind of help with the implementation or the um, getting it out there. So being able to do those hard sort of skills and bring that to the table, I think, is where, where I'm useful. Okay, last question. If 
you could recommend to my listeners an adaptation resource or you know newsletter, website, organization, just one, what would you recommend? Hmm. I think what I pay attention to a lot, truthfully, is Climate Nexus because it's a source of various different articles and you know updates on what's going on. Um, and it comes like once, twice a week or uh, I don't remember the cadence, but I, I actually do pay attention to that a lot. One, they write very well. It's like pithy in a way that you're like, oh, I, I can just get through this in the morning. I can read through it and links to everything. So honestly, I, I do rely on that a lot. I get it. And it can come every day, depending, I guess, how you sign up for it. And it's a lot. They have some great stuff, but it's just too much. I'm like, oh, my gosh. What did you just look at this? It just landed in my inbox. But, yeah, it's a great newsletter. Okay. I guess I have one more question here. If you could recommend one restaurant in Athens, Georgia, for someone to eat at, what would it be? Whoa. Well, it's been a while since I've been, but a spot that we would always go to, uh, there's two. There's Calientitas, which is, I think it's a Cuban like sandwich place. Again, it's been a long time, but we would go there all the time. BYOB, but that doesn't stop us. So that's number one. And two would be Kelly's. It's a jerk chicken place um, right around the corner from Cali and Tito's. I mean, can't go wrong. Is the grit still open when you're there? The grit what? Isn't it closed now? I th- yeah, yeah, I know. I think it, uh, don't, don't quote me on that, but I'm pretty sure something important in Athens closed recently, um, according to my sister. So, <laughs> Oh my God, that's an institution. And Michael Stive was an investor in that. Okay. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Hey, Adapters, I'm with Megan Holcomb. Hey, Megan, where do you work? I currently work at a company called Planet uh, with Climate Action Systems. So what do you do there? It is a new nonprofit that has created an app to improve collaborations across different sectors of the climate space. And I am currently working with them to figure out really how to launch this app and explore best use case scenarios. Okay, you're a little unusual. You're early career adaptation professional, but you actually have quite a bit of experience. But what's your educational background? My background is mostly in environmental science, biological systems engineering, and I've always had some sort of blended degree program where I was exploring climate and either human systems or watershed, water quality, water quantity issues. Where did you go to school? Ohio State for my undergrad and Virginia Tech for grad school. So do you feel your education gave you a solid basis for your adaptation-themed work? Absolutely. I collaborate there, but my background, you know, really started in this chemistry water quality space. And so I was interested in modeling and bringing in climate models to watershed modeling. So I had a very data-heavy, you know, hard science air quotes background, but always was applying that modeling work to very cross-disciplinary issues. So human health, wildlife health, and lots of things in between. So who or what inspired you to get into the adaptation sector? Oh, great question. Uh, I think I came into the world this way. <laughs> uh, so I was a, I was just a, a nature lover and I grew up in a time where there were still PSA announcements to unplug things and there was a light bulb cartoon, you know, advising people to save electricity. I was always advocating in my own household to my parents uh, to change our habits around trash and recycling and where we drove and how far and all those things. So it just, must have been embedded very early. 
Did your parents appreciate that? <laughs> they uh, still joke about it. My dad will tell me that he loaded the dishwasher fully before running it just to make me smile or roll my eyes. <laughs> do you feel there are enough adaptation professional development opportunities for you? I do. I, I recently, in shifting away from the public service in the past year, I was looking for jobs for the first time in you know, five plus years, and I've never seen so many climate jobs ever. I'd always was a space growing up, or, you know, whenever I shifted careers, that the job wasn't quite out there. There weren't many to look look around and, and decide between. It was more about talking to or finding specific agencies or organizations that I desired to work with and connecting with those orgs. But now it's like they're I get climate job notifications every day from LinkedIn. It's amazing. So there's absolutely a boom in opportunities. I caveat that with a lot of the context of those jobs that I'm seeing are quite vague in what they're looking for. So I think a lot of organizations know that they need adaptation professionals, but don't know the exact language or really the kind of expertise that they need on their team. So what climate hazards or impacts are you most interested in working on and why? Historically, I've been fully focused on water. Drought management has been my space for the last seven years, and I've worked in semi-arid areas throughout the world, focused on India and South, basically Southern Africa, and then moved out west in the United States to live in my home country and work on drought issues. So I've been focused on Colorado River and Western drought generally. So are you more interested in working in the private or public sector? I have always been a public sector person. I think I also came from research space. So I had a heavy research background and then worked with the EPA and the Office of Research and Development. I have oscillated between several startups and public service. However, I like the energy and the, like the vision of the startup private sector world. And I'm trying to find ways to blend the two. So is there an area of the country or the world that you want to focus on for your career? I used to think, yes, and it was really in the international developments. I, I was interested in international development as a student, which got me focused on working in other countries in the drought space, but I realized we had just as significant issues here in the U.S., um, so that brought me back to the U.S., and now that I have a more established career, I would say continuing to work in the U.S. with international influences is, is great. And I have no idea where I will land long term, but it's, I think having the ability to work at different scales is very helpful in any career and having contacts in international, national, state, local levels as makes a lot of insights very clear around what challenges exist and what opportunities there are to connect between those different scales. So I, I like to oscillate between different worlds and scales. <laughs> So how does your workplace support and facilitate you learning about adaptation? Hmm. Well, right now I would would not say that my workplace does. I am the only person with climate experience and I have I'm working with I would say end of career professionals that are trying to transition their experience from healthcare and connecting siloed areas of healthcare to the climate world and so I'm trying to serve as almost educating them on how this world works right now, how it's evolved, not just lingo and people, but really how to make that transition. So I also work as a solo consultant, um, and I have many projects that I would say connect me with organizations that really support continued education. But right now, it's me, myself, and I that pursues opportunities. 
Okay, let's see if you can get this question. Is how do you does it feel working in the adaptation resilience space, even though you're working more broadly in the climate change space? And there's the mitigation, there's the carbon side. Do you feel like you're part of the, your own identity working in the adaptation and resilience space? I would say, I, I mean, having 15 years in water sector specifically is is always been this bridge into early adaptation before adaptation. <laughs> was as strong a term because when you work with limited water resources, by default, you can't just mitigate the issues. You know, there's some things you could do to a physical system or to how water is moved in the, around the landscape, but it is dominantly an adaptation type sector where you're getting people to adjust their habits, adjust their views of, you know, how much water they should have or what it means to share water with neighbors. And so that adaptation mentality, I think, has been really rooted in my experience in the water sector. Okay, so what would you like to learn more about? Hmm. I think I'm really curious, as I've stepped out from water sector explicitly into climate broadly, I've been working with different sectors such as energy and transportation on trying to help expand capacity in organizations, meaning new jobs, more people. And I'm, I'm really curious to get specific on the types of roles that we need uh, to create and just make sure that we can communicate with people entering the workforce what the opportunities are and, and really remind them that they can create their own future. That is what a lot of us who have been around in the space have done for ourselves and articulate like where their skills and their interests can help a larger organizational mission. Who has been an adaptation role model for you and why? Hmm, great question. Oh, I can name many people off the bat, but one person, he gave me the finger, one person. I'll just throw out there a woman named Becky Mitchell. She brought me into the state of Colorado's Water Conservation Board, and she is now the commissioner of the Colorado River. And I would say she's an inspiration because she showed me that like personality and heart and passion was something to really exemplify as like a leader in natural resources and be passionate and upset about things and not have to wear this mask of seriousness. There are dire circumstances that communities are faced with and having your emotions connected to your workplace and um, the expression of just being a human in the workplace can really actually improve people's responsiveness. Do you feel there are career advancement opportunities for you? Um, yes and no. I'm, I'm a bit, I'm struggling with that now because, you know, whether I'm mid career, early career, however it's really classified, I am at an experience level that I know is far beyond what uh, is, there's not a huge pool of people with 12 to 15 years of experience in the climate space. And so it puts me at a, I guess in, in a range that has a lot of context and past experience to bring to an organization, but I am also trying to balance just the management experience. And so I am looking for more senior and director roles. I've been a senior climate specialist for the state of Colorado uh, for several years, and it doesn't necessarily match my my age, but I started in this a, long, a while ago. <laughs> yes and no, it's challenging. 
What unique skills do you bring to the adaptation sector? I would say coming from a strong technical background, I really is something that's not a given these days, uh, having spent a lot of time in the engineering world to incorporate climate models, to mess with climate models and, and really like tinker with outcomes. It put me in an early block of researchers that were able to play with the data of what we're seeing to imagine different types of futures and really show uh, with numbers the, the directions that we could go. And I meet a lot of climate professionals now that are, I guess, coming from more of a social impact lens. And my background was really a foundation of ecosystem impacts and ecosystem services. That's not always a, a strength. It's just a, a unique starting point. Okay, last question. Something for my listeners. What adaptation resource would you recommend to them, be it a website, a newsletter, an organization, just one? Well, you're already listening to America Adapts. So if I were to list another one, <laughs> it would be, this is a non-answer because it's not one, but I would really advocate anyone interested in this field to browse different podcasts and engage with the way that people are discussing problems across the country or in other countries. There's something very powerful to hear people talk about the same challenges, whether that it's energy or transportation or water in varied language, because the power of language to describe problems to different sectors is something that I think adaptation professionals need to develop those skills and have a superpower in that skill. <laughs> All right. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Hey, Adapters. I'm with Cameron Adams. All right, Cameron, you've actually been on this podcast before. What did we talk about in that episode? Yeah, thanks for having me back. I was last on when I was working in the Senate for Senator Coons, working to develop some legislation that would require a national adaptation strategy and install a chief resilience officer position in the White House. So we sort of walked through that legislation, what's in there and the process of making it. All right. A lot of us are still watching that. We're still hoping that's going to happen. It was pretty amazing that you were able to do that. That's a pretty good accomplishment for an early career adaptation professional. But let's leap in to what I was asking everyone else. What do you do and where do you do it at? Yeah. So I have left the Coons office. I'm still based in Washington, D.C., and I've moved over to the Nature Conservancy. So I'm working out of their world headquarters on the North American policy and government relations team. So we do a lot of policy development process, a lot of work with Congress and federal agencies. And my position is actually a new one for TNC. And I'm focused entirely on wildfire resilience policy at the federal level. So still sort of getting my feet underneath me, figuring out exactly what the portfolio looks like, but it's been great moving over to TNC. All right. So what's your academic and educational background and where did you go to school? Yeah. So I went to a liberal arts school up in Maine, Bowdoin College for undergrad. I studied earth and oceanographic science when I was up there. That was the, my first year I was there was the first year they had that major. They sort of took geology and tried to rebrand it a little bit and add some new faculty and change the coursework to make it more climate focused because there's so many students like me coming through that that wanted to do that work. So it was a cool time to be there. So studied earth science as an undergrad and then took about four years off and then went back to grad school. I went down to Duke and did a master's of environmental management focused on kind of coastal resilience and environmental law and policy. 
All right. So there aren't really any adaptation degrees and actually not a lot of adaptation coursework. Do you feel your college experience prepared you for an adaptation job? Yeah. So I agree with you. I definitely didn't take any adaptation focused classes in undergrad. It was a really scientific focused degree. But I do feel like that degree and that coursework prepared me. What I was doing after college directly was a lot of scientific work kind of generating data products up in Maine for climate resilience purposes, you know, sea level rise maps, coastal erosion, lots of field work and modeling and things like that. And so it was really directly prepared for that. A lot of GIS, things I did at undergrad. The cool part about that job is then I got to also sort of extend that and take it to coastal communities, try to explain their risk and sort of talk them through what the data shows and what they can expect and how, you know, some of their adaptation strategies they could employ. That was new for me, but it was, I got to ease into it through like very scientific coursework and then kind of jumped off from there. So yeah, not adaptation focused, but definitely lots of skills that, that, you know, adaptation professionals use. All right. So who or what inspired you to go into adaptation? Ooh, good question. Well, I'll keep talking about that job because that was definitely an eye-opening kind of professional experience for me. I had no idea what I wanted to do after undergrad. All I knew is I really didn't want to go get a PhD. I knew that. So I landed in state government with this, what I thought was going to be a really purely kind of scientific job and then got to dive into that process of working more directly with communities. I, I think what I had been missing and kind of like picking a career path before then was I wanted to think about science and climate, but I didn't really understand. I didn't know what I wanted the application to be. And then in that job, I just got this chance to do more like communicating of the science and solution driven kind of conversation with these at risk coastal communities. And that was when something really clicked for me. And I, I realized that was, you know, what, something I was passionate about and, and really got me out of bed in the morning was kind of seeing the full extension of that of that science work. And so that was the point pretty you know, early in my career, really my first position out of undergrad, I got really lucky to find something that I just loved. And that was when I really decided this is, I found it like, this is what I want to do. I want to stick around in adaptation. And I've, I've touched that work in a lot of different capacities and moved away from the coastal work and more into policy than in science. But that was sort of the jumping off point for me was that community engagement process. So you're working in a particular climate hazard, wildfire, but in an ideal situation, what climate hazards or impacts are you most interested in working on and why? And it could be wildfire. You might be in your dream situation. Yeah, I'm going to say wildfire because I, I did feel, yeah, I've really intentionally sought this type of work and there's a lot happening with fire right now out of necessity, you know, because of the worsening conditions and extent of these fires, but also because there's so much interest coming out of the administration and Congress, these, you know, the infrastructure bill and the Inflation Reduction Act, both put a lot of money into wildfire adaptation and federal agencies are now trying to figure out exactly how to spend that and what is, you know, the, the right adaptations kind of strategy look like. And so there's just a, a huge amount of work to be done. I think you could maybe argue a little bit more so than some other hazards right now that are maybe a little bit better further along and kind of developing those those strategies for how to adapt. So it's a really cool place to be working. You know, it feels a little bit underrepresented right now. There aren't as many of us focused in, in fire as I think there are maybe on, on things like flooding. And certainly that's that was seemed to be the case at the National Adaptation Forum. So it's been a cool place where I think there's a lot of room to to make a big difference and and be working in right now. Okay, so is there an area of the country or world, ideally, you know, this is aspirational that you'd want to focus on for your career? 
Yeah, I have been very focused kind of domestically in the United States, but thinking nationally. Uh, yeah, I mentioned I got started at, in state government. And that was really great because it gave me a lot of really close connections to the communities that you know we were working to try to protect. I got to directly interact with them and understand their needs and kind of how we could better support them, which is tougher to do when you have a national focus. But it's been really, really, really interesting working in, in federal policy just because of the kind of tantalizing prospect of coming up with good policy solutions that could be applied and make a huge difference a- across the country. And I think I haven't worked so much internationally, but the ways that we talk about this type of work is that hopefully we can develop solutions that aren't, you know, that could be applied beyond just the boundaries in which we're working and thinking. And so think and talk a lot about how we could be setting up models that could apply internationally to, to other countries facing the same issues. And so could see kind of moving in that direction down the road, maybe at some point, but for now, definitely focused on kind of a, a national federal policy focus. Going back to your education, and you'd mentioned that you felt you were pretty well prepared, but do you think that there are things that you still need to learn that the universities aren't providing? Yeah, I think that, you know, for, for my particular educational path, I had to self-identify what are the skills that I want to get in order to be a professional in adaptation. And you have to kind of chart your own course, at least in my own experience, a little bit because there's, I think, somewhat of an absence of that the really formal kind of adaptation coursework. In comparison, I think there's on the mitigation side, for instance, of my program, there's a lot of sort of mitigation 101 type of classes that give you a really good kind of scholarly class coursework focus on the issue and, and have a curriculum that's that's well laid out. And I think that it's a little tougher maybe to do on the adaptation side because there are so many different applications. But I think it would be nice to see down the road more programs with that really focused kind of laying the groundwork and then with some general adaptation coursework that gives you a lot of the vocabulary and the and the basics so that then students can kind of take that and branch off in their own ways to their own application, but giving a little bit more kind of a unifying education around the issue, because certainly that was absent for me and my coursework and would just would have been really nice early on. All right. So how does your workplace, in this case, the Nature Conservancy, support and facilitate learning about adaptation? Yeah, we're all kind of, you know, doing it together in in some cases, because at TNC, we're doing, I think, a, a good job of pulling in folks who haven't necessarily always worked in adaptation, but have worked in, for instance, you know, I work with a lot of people who've been in forestry for their whole careers. And they are thinking about wildfire now and thinking about adaptation now in a, in a slightly different way. And so we are doing a lot of just cross collaboration with different teams who are thinking about different issues and have different kind of areas of expertise to try to put our heads together and have more kind of a collective understanding of how we can make progress on the issue. We're, we're really lucky at TNC in that we're, we're a really big organization. And so we've got a lot of experts. We've got chapters in all 50 states. So there's a lot of place-based work happening on the ground, scientific staff, and then you know policy staff, and then us in the world office focus kind of more nationally, and then folks internationally. So there's a lot of opportunity to pull from resources within the organization to kind of put our heads together and solve this stuff. And I think there's a good acknowledgement that no one single person necessarily has all the answers. So we've just struck a really collaborative environment that I think is, is really productive. Who has been an adaptation role model for you and why? Ooh. Yeah, so I'll go back to the first position I had right out of undergrad working at the state of Maine, which was, as I've sort of mentioned, like a, a very formative position for me that kind of set the course of what I wanted to, to do career-wise. And my boss there, is, his name's Pete Slavinsky, he's a, he's a geologist with the state of Maine. And 
he was really, in many ways, one of the only people, certainly one of the only scientists at the state level when I was working there, focused entirely on adaptation, and I think had done a lot of work himself to make that his focus and keep that as his focus. We had an administration up there at the time that was not supportive of the work that we were doing. I'll just leave it at that. And so he had to really make sure that our work was always framed the right way, that it was always focused on public safety and supporting at-risk communities and getting really, really critical. I mean, we were making the, he and I, the two-person two team were making the first silverized maps for the state. This is back in like 2014 for communities to look at. And it was just, I was just always really, I learned a ton from him, but I was always really impressed just by how he was able to kind of weather the political wins and keep that work as a high priority so that we weren't dropping off in terms of our support for those communities, which has obviously, you know, been really critical for them to get to work early to better adapt. So Pete Slavinsky, my first boss, if you're listening, thanks for teaching me, Pete. Nice work, Pete. All right. Again, this is aspirational. Be creative. What would you like to be doing in 20 years in the adaptation space? Ooh, interesting. Man, I barely think five years ahead sometimes. Yeah, it's a really tough one. It's so hard to even imagine 20 years down the road, kind of where we'll be and and what the needs are going to be, right? It feels like right now with especially federal policy where I'm focusing, it's sort of like drinking from the fire hose. There's so much to be done and not enough resources in many cases to get it done. I, as I said, love working in, in the federal space, love thinking about these problems across the US. I would love to be in a position where we have established enough of the frameworks of covering kind of the basics and solve, grab that kind of low hanging fruit to the point where we can really be like drilling down and fine tuning, going to NAF and pulling these really specific policy recommendations to make progress in more kind of creative ways and more small ways and maybe more incremental, but nonetheless important ways. And I would just love to really be drilling down rather than the kind of big high level, broad focus that I think we have to have right now, because there's so much work to be done across all our agencies and and certainly with Congress. And so, I don't know, sort of a, a cop out, I guess, of an answer, but I just, I'm hoping that we're far enough along in two decades that we can be thinking a lot more small scale and specifically with minor policy tweaks that make a bigger difference. Yep, that'll work. So what unique skills do you bring to the adaptation sector? Mm, this isn't a unique skill, but one I'll just say that like has really served me that I think is sometimes underappreciated, but critically important for adaptation professionals. I got a ton of experience when I worked in state government. I've talked a lot about the first job that I had, the second state government job I had up in Maine, where I was at for about three years. I was sort of a, I was a regulator. I was an enforcement officer. I was sort of like a wetlands cop, right? I was getting like tips from the public that their neighbor was filling a wetland and I would go open an investigation and it was messy and very confrontational in some cases. But in most cases, I was dealing with people who were asking questions up front. You know, I want to build a house on the coast. What are the rules? And more importantly, why? Why do I have to elevate my house? Why do I have to be set back from the beach? Why do I have to minimize development on the sand dune and that sort of stuff? And so I got this real crash course in communications and just how to talk about these issues with members of the public who had never really thought about climate change ever. You know, I had somebody every week ask me, is is that climate change thing for real? And it was sort of like, you had to do that climate 101, that adaptation 101, 
kind of communication building up to what was often a no for what they wanted to do, right? For expanding their house or whatever it was for these reasons. I didn't realize it at the time how critically important that was. And I think that that is just something that has really, really, really served me. And I've come to really appreciate having those skills and highly recommend when I'm talking to younger people coming into the career who who aren't necessarily landing a job right away with like adaptation in the title, always recommend that they like try to think a little bit more broadly about what skills they need in order to be successful when they eventually land that adaptation job. And I think communications is one that anywhere you can get experience there, just talking to people or presenting or thinking about these issues and how to communicate them is will really serve you well. All right. I agree completely. All right. Final question. Is there one adaptation and one resource that you'd recommend to my listeners? Mm. So I actually get a ton of my updates, information, publications, what's going on from LinkedIn. I really started using LinkedIn less as like a personal professional development tool or whatever it's designed for and more as like a curated adaptation feed of updates and met a lot of adaptation folks that I'm obviously connected with, which is great. I also just follow a bunch. If I don't know them, you can just follow. If you think that they're the types of people that are putting out information, you can just go ahead and do that if you don't want to do the the connect, but it's really great. It just turns into a good kind of resource that I can check a few times a week and just get all sorts of a mix of news articles, but also publications and links to people's talks and things that are coming out. And and that's actually, I think, where I pull like my most adaptation news and get my most, you know, the most updates for sure. No, I agree. I look at a lot of that content too. And I obviously share a lot of information on LinkedIn leads to a lot of listens and downloads. LinkedIn is underappreciated. Good one. All right, Cameron, this has been fantastic. Thanks for coming on and good luck with what you're doing at TNC. And obviously, we'll all be watching if that national adaptation plan makes it through and actually happens. But thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Hey, Adapters, I'm with Kate Rottler. All right, who do you work with? I work for the South Central Climate Adaptation Science Center. All right, so what's your educational background? I got my undergrad in biology from the University of New Mexico, and then I went straight to my PhD and got my PhD in ecology with a graduate minor in environment and natural resources from the University of Wyoming. Do you feel your college experience prepared you well for the adaptation work that you're doing now? I think in terms of general skills, yes, in terms of being able to kind of self-direct for research or for like finding things to do. Certainly, but I think a lot of like the more specific training, it's not super relevant to what I do now, at least not in ways that are immediately obvious to me. Who or what inspired you to get into the adaptation space? It was by chance. So I basically, coming out of grad school, needed a job and happened to apply at a different climate services organization, the USDA Climate Hubs, and I got that position. And from there, just basically met the folks at the CASC and kind of moved laterally into the cask. So it was kind of chance. I didn't, I chose it because it was a job. Yeah, I love that. By chance, that's, that's going to inspire a lot of my listeners. No, I've kind of gone like where the possibilities are. So there were like open possibilities and I knew I wanted to do something applied. And so like it did definitely appeal to me because it was applied, but the adaptation arena specifically, that was more serendipitous chance. Do you feel there are enough adaptation professional development opportunities for you for the things that you're doing? Generally, I think they're pretty good. 
I haven't had a chance to do a lot of them because I kind of, I didn't move more fully into the adaptation space until right around 2020. (laughs) And so of course those opportunities evaporated because of COVID, but I'm starting to see a lot more like facilitation workshops are starting up again. And of course conferences are starting again and conferences often have workshops that I can go to for facilitation or, you know, identifying new projects or new collaborators and that kind of thing. So I think There's quite a lot of good opportunity. I think it's hard to sometimes find them. (laughs) Okay, it might not be what you're working on, but are there particular climate hazards or impacts that you are most interested in working on and why? Drought for sure. So I come from New Mexico, which is incredibly dry, um, except for this year, but generally very dry. And so I grew up with drought. I think we were in a drought my entire childhood. I think we've always been in a drought. And so definitely... I'm interested in that both because it impacts like my home community, but it's also a really important just hazard in the entire Western U.S., which is also where we work. So and it's kind of all encompassing. So, yeah, I'm really interested in working in drought. Okay, again, independent of what you're currently doing, are you more interested in working the private or public sector? I think probably the public sector. So like with state agencies or with members of the public or, you know, like I don't know what NGOs count as. Probably more public, yeah. So yeah, I I think I gravitate more towards working with the public than necessarily working with like business or that kind of thing. Again, in an ideal world, is there a area of the country or the world that you'd like to focus your career on? I think probably New Mexico and the Western U.S., probably specifically the desert Southwest. I just really love it. It's, I think, a combination of having grown up there and just... There's so much interesting work that goes on and there's so much interesting stuff going on culturally and socially and historically that is just a gold mine of of opportunity. I live in Tucson. I love it. The Southwest is the best. Okay. So what do you think you need to learn that our universities aren't providing? You have a lot of education, (laughs) but what additional things do you think you might need to learn that they didn't teach you? Yeah, so our universities, and I think this is like a pretty widely known issue, is that they focus on training people to be in academia. So there's a lot of good training on kind of like how to be a PI for a lab at an academic institution. There's not nearly as much training for like how to work across boundaries and how to work, you know, with federal or state or other agencies. And so I think we could use a lot more training kind of in the social aspects. I, they call them soft sciences, but that's such a, like, I hate, I hate that term because they're not any less difficult. And I think we need to be training our scientists more in those as well, rather than just assuming that like, we're going to graduate them and then throw them in the deep end. And they're just going to learn these quote unquote soft sciences on the job. <laughs> That's not practical. And I think what we then end up with is a lot of people who don't know how to communicate very well and end up making problems for themselves and others as they're trying to learn. At least they're not calling them the cuddly sciences or something yeah, like that. Right. right? <laughs> At okay. least they're not that demeaning. <laughs> right. Okay. How does your workplace support and facilitate learning about adaptation? The CASCs are really good about we have both for us and for just like anyone who wants to learn. We have workshops generally online is where they occur in like short courses. So kind of like over campus and stuff that talk about climate change generally and then also climate adaptation after that. So those are really good opportunities. 
I feel like part of it is just being in the office and being around all of the other people in the office who are working on these things. You just end up kind of learning by sheer level of exposure. It's what you hear people talk about all the time. It's what you hear about in office meetings or when you ask someone what they're doing today. You know, you just happen to learn by association. And I mean, that's how I that's how I originally got any kind of experience in climate science was just people in my lab were doing that. I was not. But that was just how I initially came to learn anything about it. Who has been an adaptation role model for you and why? Mm, the easy answer. <laughs> the easy answer is either my first boss out of grad school. And that was probably a lot of that is just because he was a really stellar mentor. And he has been working in climate services. He worked for the weather service before the hubs. And he knew so many people and he was so good at networking <laughs> that working with him was fantastic. But then another really good example is another of the hub employees that I worked with. He was our coordinator for the Southern Plains Climate Hub. And he's a farmer and he also is a politician, was a politician in Oklahoma. And, and he just knows an immense amount about both how to deal with people from like all areas. I mean, you watch him. I would just like go and watch him talk to people because you would learn so much just from watching him. He knew how to talk to other farmers. He knows how to talk to politicians and scientists and just, I mean, you name it, like you put him in a situation and he just starts winning people over and it's incredible. And he's really good at how do you frame climate adaptation in a way that meets people where they're at. So I learned a lot about communicating climate adaptation in rural communities from him. And I think that was really important. Okay. So what would you like to be doing in 20 years? Oh man, I have no idea. That's like the classic interview question that I'm always afraid to get. Ideally, I would like to still be working in this sphere. I mean, I always say that I would be most happy if my job became obsolete because we'd solved all the problems. So like, that would be great. I would love that, but I don't think that's earnestly going to happen. So I would like to keep working in this arena, but I would like to be able to progress maybe to where we're talking about more advanced things or trying to work on more advanced relationships than just like getting people in the same room to talk to each other, maybe getting more of them collaborating more actively and that kind of thing. But I really like working in this arena. Okay, so do you feel there are advancement opportunities in what you're doing? In the cask, I think there certainly are. I think in a lot of cases, the hard part is that they may be like you have to move laterally before you can move up. And a lot of that can require moving around geographically. And like not everyone can do that easily. I'm one of those people who can't easily do that. But I do feel like there certainly are opportunities out there. And as we've gotten more into like telework, type of situations. I feel like that's made it easier to be able to move up because there's more opportunity to do the job from where you are rather than having to like pick everything up and move <laughs> to where the job is. Okay. So what unique skills do you bring to the adaptation sector? Hmm. So when I think around problems, I've noticed that I think kind of around the problem, sometimes in an unconventional way, I think part of it is I have ADD, and so, like, when I approach a problem, I approach it almost scattershot. <laughs> and so I've actually found, like, when I'm doing science and things, that actually being able to 
that tendency to think about five or six different things at once and try to connect all the different things at once has actually been really helpful in like identifying new avenues for collaboration or being like, wait, didn't someone just say something about that earlier and drag them into the conversation because they happen to mention it. So I think, you know, I'll go with that's my unique contribution. I think there's a presentation using ADD for adaptation, you know, I think there could be some lessons learned. I've given a presentation on like ADHD in the sciences. Well, I was supposed to give it at ESA, but then I got sick. So it became a blog post instead. But yeah, I think, I think it leads to some like interesting ways of thinking around problems if you have the space to be able to do that. Okay, last question is, for my listeners, is there a specific one, just one, adaptation resource that you would recommend for them? You know, newsletter, a website, an organization? Yeah, I'm going to give them a, give them the plug here because I've actually found them really useful as the American Society of Adaptation Professionals, ASAP. They have loads of good, like, workshop material and, you know, they do get-togethers here but also at other adaptation forums. They help with some regional adaptation forums. So I think they're a wealth of knowledge and the people are a wealth of knowledge for networking and that kind of thing. So yeah, definitely they're a good resource. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. Okay, adapters, that is a wrap. Thanks to Molly, Brian, Megan, Cameron, and Caitlin for coming on the podcast. I hope you enjoyed these conversations with the next generation of adaptation professionals. I'm very encouraged by the types of people stepping up in the adaptation space. I didn't sense the cynicism and fatalism you might find in those of us who have been doing this longer, myself included in that. These adapters are excited at helping society adapt to climate change. They recognize the challenges ahead, but they are bringing some much-needed energy and innovation into this space. I do think universities have a ways to go to provide more of an adaptation background in their programs, both at the undergrad and graduate level. I think that's changing, but it's not happening fast enough. And as you are seeing on many of the job boards, experience in adaptation resilience is in high demand. That said, I think many of these employers really don't know what their needs are in resilience and adaptation planning. Some of it's really trial by error. And I think for younger professionals, that actually is a very exciting opportunity. You can help define what these adaptation needs are. If you're assertive, ambitious, I think there's a huge opportunity for you to fill in these gaps in companies and organizations. Don't be shy, network, keep learning, and make a difference. And thanks again to the Genesee Mountain Foundation for generously sponsoring this episode. And also a reminder, check out the show notes for Battelle's Innovation in Climate Resilience Conference in Columbus, Ohio, March 28th through 30th. Submit an abstract. There are links in my show notes. So what's your adaptation story? Do people that you engage with understand what is climate adaptation? Are you finding that webinars and white papers really aren't resonating in ways that promote your work? Well, consider telling your story in a podcast. If you're interested in highlighting your adaptation story, consider sponsoring a whole episode of America Adapts. Sponsoring a whole podcast allows you to focus on the work you're doing and sharing with climate professionals from around the world. I go on location to record these podcasts, which allows you a wider diversity of guests to participate. You will work with me to identify identify experts that represent the amazing work you're doing. Some of my partners in this process have been Natural Resources Defense Council, University of Pennsylvania Wharton, 
World Wildlife Fund, UCLA, Harvard, corporate clients, foundations. It's a chance to share your story with all my listeners who represent the most influential people in the adaptation sector. Most projects have communications written into them. Consider budgeting in a podcast. Podcasts have a long shelf life, much more so than a white paper or conference presentations. Many groups work into their communication strategies. There is no better platform than this podcast to get the word out on adaptation to some of the most influential and active adaptation professionals in the world. And if you're interested in having me speak at a public or corporate event, reach out. I love speaking. I've done many keynote addresses. I share stories from the podcast and my own experiences in adaptation. I think there are many sectors out there that don't understand how relevant adaptation is going to be to their sector. Let me explain it to you, and it'll actually be an enjoyable presentation. You can contact me at my website, americadaps.org. On that note, I love hearing from you. I mean it. Just say hi. If you have an idea for a guest, let me know. It is the highlight of my week. I say this over and over again. It helps me figure out who you guys are and how you're using the podcast. I'm at americadaps at gmail.com. Send me an email. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.